In the Thick of It, a Profit and Loss podcast with Colin Lambert and Galen Stobbs. Hello and welcome to In the Thick of It, Profit and Loss's weekly podcast with myself, Galen Stops. And as ever, I'm with my colleague, Colin Lambert, Managing Editor of P&L. To kick us off this week, Colin, we published a lot of stories about the global code this week. We did. Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because there seems to be a rhythm to this, which I think actually the the Global Effects Committee are trying to get out of. Um, the, The GFXC meeting in Tokyo was Tuesday, Wednesday, and... Obviously, there's a rush of news. There's a news cycle around that, and then it goes quiet. So I suspect we've had a lot this week because of that meeting. Um, I grabbed um, sort of 20 minutes, half an hour with Simon Potter, the outgoing chair of the uh, GFXC. He steps down in July um, and will be replaced by Guy DeBell, which is a kind of back-to-the-future thing, really, because obviously if you think Guy was the person that led the committee in the first place that developed the global code. Yeah. Um, I think I'd, I'd love to know the dynamic behind him actually being re or being appointed, technically, but being reappointed. Um, because I was talking to somebody quite senior in the market a couple of weeks ago, and we were discussing then because we were saying, "Oh, you know, Simon's time as chair of the GFXC is coming to an end." because he's done his two years, who's going to take over? And we kind of looked around and we were struggling for somebody because if you look at the major central banks, obviously the Fed's out of the equation because they've they've, they've just given the chair. Um, we were looking at the others going, well, actually, every other central bank really is kind of um, lost someone senior in, in recent years who you could have seen as head of this committee. So it's quite interesting that they've actually bought guide the bill back. It could also be seen as a statement of commitment in its own right, all puns intended, by the um, central banks, because with all due respect to Simon and um, to his predecessors, we're now talking about a deputy governor of a central bank rather than the head of markets. So it's actually a more senior person running the committee. So I found that quite interesting. Um, Clearly, it's been welcomed by the market. I got, you know, within a couple of hours of us publishing the story, I got you know, more than 20 messages in various formats saying how good it is that guy's back. Um, so I think, I've, you know, I've, I've received a few comments myself, actually, um, positive-wise, just because, um, I mean, people, people that I spoke to just rightly or wrongly saw him as such a driving force at the start of this. Yeah, um, yeah, which he was. I mean, not, not, yeah, I mean, just because he was there at the very beginning, he was very, he was very public about his kind of about pushing this, about his support for it. So a lot of people that I spoke to who were kind of supportive of the code were very pleased to see that that it's gone back to him now. Yeah, and in the in the interim, of course, he's been promoted to deputy governor from assistant governor. So. Um, I mean, on one hand, I look at it and go, like, is the guy not busy enough? <laughs> he's, he's lining him up for a load more work. But then I think for the industry as a whole, yes, it's a good thing. It, let's say it's a statement of commitment that people are taking this seriously. Um, I think it was interesting talking to Simon on, I think it was Wednesday morning here. Um, it was after the first day and before the second day. The second day, I, I understand, was more about presentations from local FX committees. But we went, we did a quick run through the, the key working streams there. The cover and deal um, disclosures and buy-side outreach. Now, the 
disclosures thing, I didn't really get a sense that much had moved on with disclosures talking to him. There was more discussion around the anonymous venues. You recall in February they put a paper out about all the work streams, and the disclosures one said we need to do we need to understand more about what's going on um, around the anonymous venues. Um, we did talk about that a fair bit, but I, my sense was they were still hunting down for the right approach to take. Um, okay. And actually, maybe even trying to work out what could, what they could do. Um, and I and I think that will be an ongoing problem for the for the committee because I was speaking to someone earlier today, and we were just talking about you know um, getting ECNs to police their liquidity pools a little bit stronger. And basically, I think, you know, we're talking senior people in the market. We kind of agree that there's no way an ECN will actually give up volume for transparency of action or transparency of counterparties. So it becomes a difficult one for them. So, And that's kind of the sense I got from talking to Simon but, Potter on, on this week. Should they? Um. That's, I mean, honestly, yes, I think they should, because um, whilst the we need, to, you know, we need to understand we live in a world now where now that foreign exchange has been tainted, I think we are judged by the lowest common denominator when it comes to conduct, and whilst most of the major platforms, um, I think, do the best they can, I think there's a problem when it comes to further down the ladder. There are, there, are, there are, I mean, you still hear stories about people abusing last look, high rejects, you know, slippage within the last look window that, that sometimes the extent is still to three, four hundred milliseconds, which is ridiculous. Um, so I kind of think there so, is... So when you're talking about transparency here, what specific, let's get specific. What specifically are you talking about? What would you like to see be more transparent? I would like to I would like platforms, anonymous venues, to be very transparent about why a trade was rejected. They should be. They should publish reject rates by um, LPs. They could publish potentially market impact of clients. Now they can do all this by tags, and they can they can aggregate it and anonymise it. But generally speaking, it gives a better sense of behaviour on that platform. Now for the no okay. last look venues, no, no, should, no should, they, should they be should they be publishing this what publicly? Yeah, why not? Sorry, I thought the world was about transparency now. You know, everyone seems to agree transparency is a great thing. I personally don't happen to agree, but everyone seems to. Everyone else seems to think transparency is a great thing. Um, what's more transparent than publicising behaviour on your platform? As in, our LP, our LPs rejected 1.3% of trade requests in the last month. I, I, I just don't see a problem with it. But are you talking about LPs aggregated or like anonymized specific LPs like this LP one? I would, I would, I would. I think no. I think it has to be aggregated because you don't want to be picking out individual tags at, the, at any given time. However, okay. a good citizen ECN would probably also then, if they've got an LP rejecting three percent of the trades, in some cases twenty percent of the trades, then I think the ECN should and probably does take a look at why that is. You know, is it the fact that the customers are trying to run them over and they're just defending themselves? 
or is it the fact that there's something strange going on? Now, at the top level, I don't think there's anything strange going on, but when you go further down, there's definitely some strange stuff going on. So that's what I was going to say, though, because for a second I thought you were talking about like individual, publishing individual LPs, and I was going to say, which no, is, no. you know, it, doing that anonymously doesn't necessarily account for like times when actually it's the clients that are, are trying to run them over, and they're actually right to have a higher reject rate. And that's maybe why I would look at it and say they could also publish market impact statistics from their customer flow. So the you know, and again you can aggregate and anonymize it. So you could turn around and say, you know, like um tier one clients, tier two clients, whatever you want to call them, asset managers, corporates, banks, it doesn't matter. Um but the average market impact in the last month at say you know, five hundred milliseconds was X. And that way you get a sense of what type of client is trading on the platform and also what type of LP behavior you're seeing there. Now, it's a bit chicken and egg because if you're going to get more aggressive customers, then the LP is going to reject more. So you need to understand that. But I just think yeah. it, gives a, it gives a better understanding to the outside world and to potential users of the platforms um, that, you know, this is what goes on on this venue. And, you know, Everyone seems everyone's very keen. So we've signed up the global code. We've done this. We've done that. Well, if you're really confident in your business model, then I would suggest that you could actually publish this sort of data. I, I'm not so. So my thing is okay. So you, they're obviously giving all of this type of data to individual people, right? You know, you had this many rejects rate this month. Mm-hmm. And this is why, and this was your market impact. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. I see beyond. Potentially, as you said, potentially attracting a, a few more customers if your data is really good. I'm not sure I see that much advantage or impetus to making that publicly available the way that you publish, like, say, monthly volumes or something. But then what what good does the monthly volumes do? You know, I mean, a lot of the platforms that publish monthly volumes publish it across all product sets. So, you know, if you take... Um, well, no, just, we, won't, we won't name someone, but take a platform that's doing, say, 50 yards, and I'm using that number deliberately because I don't think any platform does 50 yards, but um, 50 yards across products. It could be 48 of it. It could be Tom Next Swaps, and 2 billion could be Spot. You know, I, I would argue oh. that there's no value in the volume numbers either. Oh, I, I completely agree. And by the way, the conversations I have with every platform provider every time someone moves from one platform to the other they'll come and tell me like oh you should do an article about how uh about how they calculate their volumes because you know they're really like they're adding up yeah. one column and they're moving to this column but obviously we don't do that but you know all the others no. do, right? <laughs> until they move to another platform and all of a sudden yeah. they're going to go somewhere else yeah well, yeah exactly yeah so, so, so would you be willing to go on the rest and talk about that oh no mate can't do that one can't do that one no, <laughs> Welcome to our world, listeners. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, I think yeah, the, the platform thing is an interesting one. Um, I do think, I mean, it was interesting because, I mean, I, someone was telling me today about um, a dedicated pool of liquidity where all the LPs are um, have statements commitment to the global code. So they're all adhering to the code. And that's good. I get that. I mean, you know, I think, frankly, you know, I mean, I think, you know, EBS has a thing where you 
in your monthly report, it ticks whether an LP has signed the, has filed a statement of commitment, for instance. So that sort of thing is good. Um, what I would say, though, is that down the road, why don't they, if they can prove that this is a better pool of liquidity, as in it's 100%, no last look, um, good volumes, not you know one or two top of book, but solid top of book because you've got some seriously good LPs streaming a price to it, no market impact. If I look at that, that to me is more attractive as a, as most as an asset manager, for instance. That's got to be more attractive than a pool where I'm risking rejects and um, you know a market impact. Therefore, why not make these pools actually only available to clients that have signed the global code? Because these guys could be running over people, and to that end, I, the real, I mean, that was that is. I have to stress from what I'm, what I'm about to say. I have to stress that is my view only. But I did get the sense talking to Simon Potter this week that they're going to be, and we we quoted him in the article. There's going to be a multi-pronged approach to the buy side now, and it will be a continued education and governance thing around you know, you know understanding how your LPs act, which has been ongoing. But he did mention the fact that. At some stage, you'll be stressing to asset managers, in particular the large asset managers, that actually they have clients as well. You know, they have investors, and this is something that um, Christoph Hocker, Union Invest Funds, in said at our Frankfurt conference, well, I published a story on that on Monday, and he said, "No, no, we going to we are going into pitches now for investors and asset allocators, saying, and um, you know." It's a, it's, a, it's a small part of the overall pitch, but it's an important part. And, oh, and we adhere to the FX Global Code of Conduct. So we and run our business properly. We understand what our LPs do. We curate our liquidity pools carefully. So and then the, I, allocators I and, and the allocators and investors say, the what? The what is this? The, the yeah. code of what? <laughs> oh, no, no, no. I, I, I have to correct you there. The asset the allocators go, sorry, what's foreign exchange? <laughs> you are right of course and I think that is the big challenge is to get into those end investors and the end users you know, and the allocators and like you know, this should be part of your due diligence but my sense was that they were actually going to take I wouldn't call it a more aggressive approach but a more positive and proactive approach to okay Maybe you need to think a bit harder about how we're approaching some of these firms, because you know we all agree that it will be handy if some of the buy side did sign up. At the moment, I think it's fair to say they have a lack of incentive, but that could be an incentive. As in, well, here's a here's a pool of liquidity that's very robust, zero rejects, deep, and the spreads are good, um, but you can't. Execute into it, I'm afraid, unless you adhere to the global code. Um, will a bank do that? I very much doubt it. Um, they should yeah, do. I don't. But then I, yeah. I can tell you who would who I could tell you who would go for that, and that will be central banks. And as our panelist Jens Buda from um, the Bundesbank said in Frankfurt, they're a buy side customer. They're a central bank, but they're also a buy-side customer because they they access and, and use liquidity, consume liquidity from the market. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's 
going to be a, it's going to be an interesting one there. I think it's. Um, do you do you get the sense looking from your conversations with people and and looking at the the reporting that we've done following this latest uh, meeting? Are, we, are you sensing a slight change in direction or kind of change in emphasis at all from, um, you know, regarding the, the FX Global Code from the committee? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it was interesting because this was my third interview with Simon Potter over the two years that he's been in the chair. And I thought his tone was more strident this time. That could okay. just be a it could just be a one off to say I may be reading too much into it, but for instance, when we were talking about cover and deal, the working stream on cover and deal, you know, he was quite blunt. He said, Yeah, we had a robust discussion about it, which is good shorthand for there was an argument about it. Um but he he did stress, he said like it would became clear that it's not well understood by customers. And what I thought was interesting was, whereas before it would have been, and yeah, that's something we need to work on and educate customers on, there was also the suggestion that this time it might be because some providers have been a little bit obtuse, quote unquote, in how no. they describe their activities. In other words, yeah, I mean, they're marked in one thing. So yeah, we're a, you know, we're a liquidity provider, blah, blah, blah. But the minute our three banks and two non-bank LPs turn us off, we turn you off. So you're not a liquidity provider at all. I am yeah, shocked, shocked to find I know, shocked, outraged, and appalled. <laughs> but you see, my point, though, is that, my point is that yeah, if you go back a couple of years, that language wasn't being used. Yeah. So I do sense that there has been a kind of a, a change in direction there. I mean, I think it will be an interesting year because I think, you know, if to me the key still remains the buy side. Um, because if you get the buy side more fully on board, then the buy side starts demanding things from, for instance, ETNs um, and from certain LPs. And that all feeds back to that allows people who want to do the right thing to show they're doing the right thing and give people, you know, like a, a global code liquidity pool, gives them an opportunity to say, okay, well, we're on the same page here. Here's a here, you know, here's a better service. And I want to stress that it's a multi-bank, sorry, multi-LP liquidity pool, not just one bank's LP as an LP. So I think, you know, it could be an interesting year, but to me, the, the buy side's, is at the centre of it. So, okay. We should we're, moving on, while we're talking about buy side, um, yeah, there was to, to shift on to another topic. There was an interesting report this week that came out, um, which was about how um, long-only investors are increasingly looking at alternative data. Um, yeah, which kind of I thought was so. Okay, I think that this report is it's an indicative, but it also kind of amused me a little bit. Um, so basically, they did this report that said nearly half of investment managers um, said that they use alternative data with another quarter plan to do so in 12 months. Uh, budget show, uh, study shows that the budgets are up for alternative data 52% in the last year, and 56% of investors have added new alternative data sources in the past two years. Now, I do not doubt that, that any of that is true. I think that, that probably that sounds all sounds about right to me. What amused yeah. me was the the kind of the jump that was made here in uh so I'm gonna read you a quote from someone who conducted the survey. 
Until recently, the usage of alternative data has been confined mainly to the realm of quantitative investment managers. Now, alternative data is beginning to go mainstream, with increasing interest from fundamental and hybrid asset managers. So, here's the thing. Okay, as we actually published another article that talks a lot about alternative data, and the person we were interviewing was saying, alternative data is literally everything. Broadly speaking, it's literally everything that basically isn't pricing data, that doesn't come from an exchange or a platform. Yeah. So to say to say that like long only investment managers are using alternative data, absolutely factual. They are looking for more data than the exchanges to give the impression that they are now moving into the realm of. And, and don't get me wrong, some are, but broadly speaking, to give the impression that they're like moving into the realm of of, quoting, of cutting edge quant trading is very misleading. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, I mean, I, I sat at a conference, I think it was 18 months ago, and there was a buy-side panel there, and they were talking about alternative data, and their alternative data was still satellite imagery of, and it was the old thing, I think I might have even used it before on this one, the JC Penny car parks. Oh, and they used the number of, they used the number oh, of cars in the JC Penny car parks yeah. to judge okay. performance for the year. I'm going like, but JC Penny's are in malls. How do you so, know they're going to JC Penney's? Well, firstly, so th- this is hilarious because so we, we did um, an interview with the new uh, head of markets, macro strategy products and analytics at, at BNY Mellon, and he was yeah. talking about alternative data. And of course, he used the example of the number of cars in the parking lot um, or the images of ships going across water, right? And I, yeah. I'm not making this up. I maybe heard this like in the region of 50 times. Every time I go to it, like I have any interview or conference or event and people talk about alternative data, like satellite imagery of ships and cars and the counting the cars in the car park, right? Whoever the salespeople are who are selling this data to people are doing a phenomenal job. Because <laughs> there could not be that many people for whom, for whom the number of cars in the car park although the the, uh, the shadow of ships moving across the water is relevant, but they seem to be selling it everywhere because it's all anyone talks about. And I mean, this is an interesting one, isn't it? Because if you look at it and think, alternative data to me should be somebody looking for an edge. Um, you know, is there something, is there, you know, <clears throat> we look at correlations. Can I identify a correlation between a particularly unstructured data set and the market? Um, it seems to me that with everyone rushing into alternative data, what we're actually going to have is everyone looking at the same data again and coming to the same conclusions. As you say, oh, yeah, well, JC Penny car parks were packed. Their sales are going to go through a roof. Well, there's actually no value to you unless, I suppose there is a value to you if you can get in one minute before everyone else. But it, it just worries me that people are looking at it a bit like AI. You know, we spoke about AI a couple of weeks ago. You wrote that piece and like, you know, the percentage of people looking at AI. They're not using proper AI. These guys are not using proper alternative data. So, so um, the alternative so, data so, has got to be very niche to me, sure, it, it seems. It, it does. And I think, I think, I mean, there was, there was a rush a few years ago where I think loads of people were really excited about alternative data and they were going to be finding these yeah. crazy weird sources that were going to give them this minute edge to trade. Um, and then I think some people found, some people have done it successfully, but I think a lot of people found the promise of alternative data didn't quite live up to the 
when you weigh up the yeah. cost of, of finding and accessing this data to the amount of actual tangible return that it gives you was kind of limited. So I think it's died down a little bit. But yeah, I think it's it's another one of those, those big buzzwords that the people get um, very excited about. Um, and so in this interview with BNY Mellon, we're talking about, you know, um, they were saying that they want to expand the data sets that they're using because, you know, everyone everyone's looking at the same pricing data. Um, yeah. And, I mean, he was saying the other problem is investors have too much data these days. There's so much data and information is thrown their way. But it's actually about how do you how do you sift through the data that's out there to actually produce differentiated insights, to produce some something different to what they already get. And so he was obviously talking about, you know, we got into the kind of alternative data, you know, saying, you know, like a lot of the problems with, you know, unstructured data is it's just a lot of it's not that valuable now. For example, you know, social media is a great example. You know, I was asking, I was asking uh, John, who I interviewed about, you know, is is social media kind of the source you're looking at? And he was frankly like, no, it's it's way down on our list of indicators, um, just because it's an echo chamber. Um, there's so much misinformation out there. Um, someone says something and it gets repeated a million times immediately, but it doesn't necessarily mean anything. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of, a, it's another one. It's another one that everyone gets excited about, but it isn't actually that useful in practice. So I think kind of people need to, I think alternative data is going to be valuable, but I think people need to set their sights a little lower than this really kind of weird esoteric data. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> well, if you think about it, surely there, I mean, unless you can get a, a true leading indicator from alternative data, then the laws of economics would work against it because you know, the markets move upon trades and investor or trader sentiment. And if 90% of the traders are looking at ordinary data and they all see that old GDP's up and they go and buy it, you could have a piece of alternative data telling you it's going to go down eventually. But can you stand in the way of 90% while they go and do you know, what may prove to be the wrong trade? So to me, you've also got to look at it in terms of timing around how you use this data. Um, I mean, I, I think someone like BNY Mellon, it's the same with State Street. They're in a strong position because I wouldn't call it alternative data, but they have they access to data across markets that yeah. is relatively unique. Um, yeah. There are other institutions out there that have that. And to me, that's, you know, you could argue that is alternative data. I would definitely argue that that's alternative data. And that's actually, yeah. in many ways, more valuable, I think, than a lot of the, you know, quote-unquote alternative data out there because no one, that's proprietary data, right? So no one else yeah. can source that. That's a, a unique view. So I think when they're talking about, I mean, he's talking about kind of the, the challenges of data and a lot of it, you know, he's saying a lot of it is actually just that the hardest part is just wrestling the data to the, to the ground to produce meaningful insights from it. So honestly, I think, yes, they'll, they'll, they'll look outside BNY Mellon and they'll find, you know, useful data that correlates with what they already have internally and gives new insights, et cetera. But I think even just drilling down within the company to produce data, to use all the data they have internally and then produce insights off that actually gives a unique proposition and value for these big companies. Yeah. Well, actually, um, I mean, you know, um, John Ashworth, CEO of Kaplan, is a, 
a fairly regular podcaster with us, isn't he? And John yeah. made this point before, I think, when we were talking about day two, when we did a podcast with him in Chicago last year, he made the point that actually there's a tremendous amount of data in, inside the firm, and that should be the first port of call, because yeah. that will be the only unique data that you'll ever have access to. I remember speaking to... Um I think his official job title was, you know, data forensics expert or whatever, um, at Vanguard a few years back. And he was saying though that, 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 but he was asked about the biggest challenge. He was like, the biggest challenge I have is just finding the data internally. He's just like, it's just actually just pulling it all together yeah. and finding what you need internally is so difficult because there's so many different groups and silos and different, um, and, and different parts of it. And I think, I can't remember if it was, it was another major bank was on there and he concurred saying, you know, like obviously in a bank, you've, you've swallowed up different groups and you've, you've had different reorganizations and none of the IT speaks to each other. So he was like, we have all this. I know that we have all this amazing data set internally, but it's actually very difficult sometimes to, to put it all together in a meaningful way and then be able to, to pull out the data you need from that. Yeah. I mean, it also sits with transparency, doesn't it, as well, I suppose. You know, everybody's got to pay for research. Everyone's got to pay for transparency. Um, and, if, you know, how do you do that if you're, you know, if you're giving internal data? You know, how much internal data can you give away? I mean, the whole world, I think that whole piece needs probably revisiting. I mean, it was interesting. I was talking to a couple of people this week, and they were both saying, you know, about the MIFID thing, the research piece is what everyone was worrying about. You've got to pay for research. Actually, no one's really paying for research. Um, it's kind of the same old, same old, you know. We don't really read the research anyway. We don't look at it. Um, but the transparency that everyone was after has actually disappeared because more people are actually going into less transparent things like liquidity pools using agents, uh, sorry, dark pools using agents and stuff like that. Um, I kind of think that this alternative data will come under the microscope at some stage because you kind of look at it and think, will it be abused by someone? You know, we've got Twitter following, you mentioned Twitter following hedge funds um, the other week. You know, we've got these funds, we've got people on Twitter, and, then, and I think it's good that the BMY guy said, look, we don't really pay that much attention to, to social media because if it's one thing the world's learned over the last two years, it's, you know, and you don't want to give the donor too much credit for anything, but it's about fake news. There's a lot of crap on social media that gets repeated. But, but not just on social media. I mean, we did one of the things we talked about no. in the interview was was kind of the, the challenges of of you know of the the hashtag fake news era, right? Yeah. Um, and and they were saying in the interview that, that is a it's a real issue. I mean, there's the proliferation of media that doesn't you know adhere to the the quality and important editorial yeah. standards that we do. Um, it, it's a big problem who, for people who are chewing through uh, media as a data source. And it's a 24-hour news cycle now, which means that the media organizations are more desperate to fill their airtime, um, such as it may be, or screen time. And they've got to refresh. And this means that inevitably they will probably end up looking at some, you know, such things. Um, how, how deeply philosophical. Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> we we will close out now. Actually, um, just a couple of things I wanted to go on a similar note. Actually, I got a, I got an email tonight from a retail broker. So this has been recorded um, Friday morning in New York, so Friday night Sydney. Um, and Theresa May has announced she's going to step down on the seventh of June. And I happen to be looking at the markets at the same time because I'm a sad odor, can't get away from it. And um, I got well, a really interesting that. email from a retail yes from a retail broker saying, oh, you know, Sterling Sterling. Actually, I might even be able to find what they actually said. It was like something like sterling dumps or sterling collapses or something really dumb like that. And I do, I use the word dumb. I can't find it, unfortunately. But basically, I'm looking at things like, well, yeah, that's interesting because I was looking at the um, markets and sterling went up. I actually tweeted and said, you, you know you're an unpopular PM when you resign or you're an actual departure date and the, and the pound goes up. And so I've got this retail broker and oh, sterling goes down. I'm gonna, well, it went up, then it went down. I'm oh, sorry, though, pound drops as Theresa May resigns is what, is what the headline was. So basically, sterling went up, then it dropped, but not as far as it rose, and then went up again. Is it any wonder all these retail traders lose money? Because, <laughs> I mean, that is, to me, I look at that and go, that is fake news. I'm looking at it now, actually, it's still 10 points higher than it was earlier, Cable. So, yeah, I mean, that's fake news. So, yeah, there we go. Um, that's my wind on retail brokers out of the way for this sure year. There'll be another on. one next month, everybody. Exactly, yeah. Um, and the only other thing is, um, talking of fake news, it is not fake news that we are... I can't believe they've let us on. We are on the iTunes store. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so those of you that cannot get away without you're in the thick of it fix, um, yep, you can now live your life through the iTunes store. Simply go there, search for in the thick of it, and uh, subscribe. And you haven't got to worry about doing all the click-throughs. It just delivers to your device, as they say. Um and we're going to we're going to endeavour to try and get this out on a Saturday morning. So, if you're really sad and have got nothing to do with your life, you can listen to us over the weekend. <laughs> I like Colin staring at the screen in the morning. Exactly, no, nothing like a good sales pitch, and that was nothing like a good sales pitch. So, um, on that note, um, yeah, please tell your friends we're on the iTunes store. Much easier to get to us. Um, we will return next week, and uh, we'll speak to you then. Thanks very much for listening.